Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Welcome to the Bread of the Word podcast, a podcast striving to feast on God's Word and let the Bible speak to us all. Let us, as a former generation said, go ad fontes to the fountain and be nourished and sustained by all that God is. Let's dig in together. Well, hello. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Bread of the Word podcast, where we go ad fontes to the fountain, to the Word of God, to be nourished and sustained by all that God is. We are continuing our trek in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we have come to chapter 11. Uh, 11 of 12, so we are getting there. The end is nigh, and we will be um, starting our next series very soon, and I'm very excited for where God will continue to lead this podcast uh, in the new year as we continue into 2023. But we are wrapping up all of chapter 11 today, and as with chapter 10, it's intense. Poetically, it's very intense. Continuing our trek in this book of wisdom, an existential pondering, Solomon lays out before us in chapter 11 something that is chock full of parallelism. We talked about that a little bit last week with chiasm, with lines that build off of each other are otherwise connected. In parallelism, um, two lines of a verse relate to each other either by completing the thought, contradicting the thought, or expanding the thought. And we might liken it to writing in stereo. And it's a very common theme in a uh, Hebrew poetry, and so we have to keep that in mind as we read poetry, um, especially here in Ecclesiastes. It gets pretty heavy with the uh, with that, similar to what we see in Psalms, but it has a different flair to it, um, something that's very Solomonic. And in addition to that, we have more of the garden language that we saw earlier in the book. Now, once again, Solomon is tying us back to Genesis. And so without further ado, let us read um, chapter 11 in its entirety, and then we will break it down verse by verse as we go, reading out of the Christian Standard Bible. For those of you that are curious what Bible I read out of, um, so chapter 11 says, Send your bread on the surface of the water, for after many days you will find it. Give a portion to seven or seven to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full, they will pour out rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. One who watches the wind will not sow, and the one who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you don't know the path of the wind, or how bones develop in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you don't know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening do not let your hand rest, because you do not know which will succeed, whether one or the other, or if both of them will be equally good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasing for the eyes to see the sun. 
Indeed, if someone lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, and let him remember the days of darkness, since they will be many. All that comes is futile. Rejoice, young person, while you are young, and let your heart be glad in the days of your youth, and walk in the ways of your heart and in the desire of your eyes. But know that for all of these things God will bring you to judgment. Remove sorrow from your heart and put away pain from your flesh, because youth and the prime of life are fleeting. So now we're going to go verse by verse through this. And so we, we see parallels. We, we've got to keep in mind the way that these lines interact with each other. Um, but starting off with verse 1, Send your bread on the surface of the water, for after many days you may find it. In ancient Egypt, people would, it was an agricultural practice to float seed when the Nile was high, when the, the water level was high. And as the waters receded, the seeds would be deposited in the soil because when the Nile um, receded, it left behind all of this rich black soil. And so these three verses here give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you don't know what disaster may happen on earth, which is a key phrase in Ecclesiastes, by the way, you don't know. If the clouds are full, they will pour out rain on the earth, whether a tree falls to the south or to the north. The place where the tree falls, there it will lie. So these three verses, A, it's agricultural language. It's, this is very garden-esque speak. And these three verses give a picture of man's investment while also recognizing God's sovereignty, that it's pitting man's responsibility with God's ultimate sovereignty putting those two in dialogue. Now, Charnock once wrote that the power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he please, whatsoever his infinite wisdom can direct, and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will can resolve. Acts chapter 17 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in shrines made by human hands. Neither is he served by... I'm sorry, does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands, as though he needed, needed anything. I'm, trying, I'm going King James on you over here. As though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. So Solomon uses agriculture um, to illustrate the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And while there's absolutely practical nuggets in this agricultural wisdom that we can apply to different areas of our life, say generosity, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you don't know what disaster may happen. But ultimately, there's, there's the literal sense and there's the fuller sense, and so we've got to peel back that extra layer to get to the grand thing that points us to God and the work of Christ. And so he uses agriculture to segue into discussion on God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in light of that sovereignty. Verse 4 says, One who watches the wind will not sow, and the one who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you don't know the path of the wind, or how bones develop in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you also don't know the work of God who makes everything. And that reminds me of a portion from John chapter 3. Unless someone is born of water and of and the spirit he cannot enter the kingdom of god whatever is born of the flesh is flesh and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit 
Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is of the Spirit, who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus asked, How can these things be? Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe me if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In John 6, Jesus is asked, what can we do to perform the works of God? And Jesus replied, This is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. Isaiah 40 says, Who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has become his counselor? Who will advise him? With whom did he consult? And who advised him? Whoever explained a decision to him? Who has ever shown him a way of understanding? And Job 38 says, Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. He said, Who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? What supports its foundations? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for glory? You see, just as Captain Ahab thought he had circumscribed the white whale and become its master, that he had found out how to predict this whale, we are often tempted to think that we have fully comprehended God, that we have predicted his ways, that we have mapped out how God is. And that's not what it is. The reality is we are not God. And God responds to those that notion in this way. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their robes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter, and you will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe, and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your re rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment, and all who take refuge in him are happy. Psalm 99 says, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The earth is great. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awe-inspiring name. He is holy.
Let us remember. Let us remember that God is not like us. There is threshold that we commune with the divine, but we are not the divine. And Exodus 3 gives us a good um, example of that. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire, but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't this bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That's to say, the God of covenant. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And Clement comments on this passage in this way. When the Almighty Lord of the Universe began to, began to legislate through the Word and decided to make his power visible to Moses, he sent Moses a divine vision with the appearance of light in a burning bush. Now a bramble bush is full of thorns. So too, when the Word was concluding his legislation and his stay among men as their Lord, again he permitted himself to be crowned with thorns as a mystic symbol. Returning to the place from which he had descended, the word renewed that by which he had first come. Appearing first in the bush of thorns, and later being surrounded with thorns, that he might show that all was the work of the same one power. He is one, and his father is one, the eternal beginning and end. This is the God that we cannot understand. The God who goes beyond our comprehension. This book is a big book, but this is not all that God is. This is all that he has revealed for us to know about him. But there is more than what could be hidden in this book. This is just what God has thought fit for us to know about him. But when we enter into the gates of glory, sanctified in his holy presence, we will know him more. There will be a deeper way with which we know God because we are not defiled by our unsinful eyes. We will behold his glory with unfallen eyes, with redeemed faces, with ransomed existence. The medieval monastics had a practice of contemplating God that they called via negativa, the way of the negative. What they would do is they would ponder God by calling to mind and nailing down all the things that he is not. And then they would thus work backwards from the negative to the positive. They would do this until they came to the point where even human words were inadequate to describe God. At one point, with pondering the greatness of God, even language fails human language will fail. And at, at this point, 
the monastics, these monks, would just sit in silent awe of God. And Anselm put it this way, And so, Lord, do thou, who dost give understanding to faith, give me so far as thou knowest it to be profitable, to understand that thou art as we believe, and that thou art which we believe. And indeed, we believe that thou art a being than which nothing greater can be conceived. He's the thing with which no greater thing can be imagined, can be conceived. Ecclesiastes 11.5 Just as you don't know the path of the wind, or how bones develop in the womb of a pregnant woman, so also you don't know the work of God who makes everything. One of the key phrases of Ecclesiastes is, we don't know. We don't know how God works. We do not know just how great he is. What we can know about God is very shallow in comparison with the glory that will be revealed someday to the ransomed, to those who are in Christ. Paul once wrote that eye has not seen, an ear has not heard, and mind has not conceived that which God has set aside for those who love him. The glory that is to be revealed is greater than the suffering of now. This is the God we worship, the God who is beyond human rationale. And while we, like I said, we can understand it to a point. But God is not human, and we are not God. And so we come to this God that is not bound to our comprehension of him. Verse 6, In the morning sow your seed, and in, at evening do not let your hand rest, because you don't know. You don't know which will succeed, whether one or the other, or if both of them will be equally good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasing for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, as someone lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. The exhortation to sow is rooted in the cognizance of the fact that we are mortal. Memento more, memento vitae. Remember, you must die. Remember, you must live. Colossians 2 says, So then, just as you have received Christ, Jesus, as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world, rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him, who is the head over every ruler and authority. And you are also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands, by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ, when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the, circum the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us, and he has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. 
he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly, and he triumphed over them in him. In him. So with the lordship of God governing their lives, the Colossians are exhorted to continue to walk in him, to make their, certain their conduct at all times reflects Christ, reiterating Paul's statement in 110, walk worthily of the Lord. Right belief, in other words, produces right behavior. The theology matters. What we believe about God matters. Because we will walk in that. What if our ethics were eschatology? What we believe about the end is not just what we tack on to the end of the Bible. But it informs how we live now. So with the text speaking as it does. Um, some commentators have noted this is about investments. It's about agriculture. It's about diversifying your portfolio. And while that may be the immediate application here, I think there's a deeper meaning. Not necessarily investing in money, in produce, but investing in the pursuit of God as he is, as opposed to how we would want him. Let us invest in the God who is. Colossians 3 says, So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. That's a strong statement. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Light is sweet, and it is pleasing for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if someone lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, and let him remember the days of darkness, since there will be many. All that comes is futile, or a hevel, it's vapor. And so we come back to this word, hevel. Living in this world requires us to acknowledge that, first of all, it is hevel. But it also requires that we look beyond the vapor and see the substantive things that are in Christ. Hebrews 5 says, We have a great deal to say about this, and it is difficult to explain. Why, since you have become too lazy to understand. Ouch! Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual wor washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. In other words, let's not get stuck on the basics. Let's continue to grow in Christ. Let's continue to walk in Christ. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's go on to maturity. Let us, let us grow. That is part of the work of, Spirit, the work of the Spirit in us, is that we grow, that we develop, we mature. 
This isn't some fancy um, theological exercise for the learned. This is what the Spirit does in us. The Spirit teaches us all the things that Christ has commanded. That he, he, the, he's our advocate. He's our comforter. He is. He indwells believers. Why that we may continue to walk in the things of God. He enables to do what we could not do in our flesh. So that Jesus could say, if you love me, keep my commandments. And the point of the Old Testament is that they couldn't do that. Because something was missing. So now Solomon turns his, t his attention to the young people. He says, rejoice, young person, while you are young, and let your heart be glad in the days of your youth, and walk in the days of your heart and in the desire of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. Remove sorrow from your heart and put away pain from your flesh. So once again, we've got this recognition of the fact that we will die and we will enter judgment. And so he says, be glad in the days of your youth. Don't squander the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart. And the, the word heart in Hebrew context means inner self. We're not talking about feelings. We're talking about the inner part of a person. Um, Romans 7 uses the phrase inner self as well. It's Greek. But they're building off that idea. So I discover this law. I discover this to be a law. What I want to do, I want to do what is good, but evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law. But I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin death. For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering, in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Young men, myself included, pursue the things of Christ at a young age. Do not put off growth until you are older. Chase after maturity now. Abide in Christ today. Hebrews 12.14 says, Pursue peace with everyone in holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. J.C. Ryle described this sanctification as a fight to which every believer is called to, young and old. He says, No rank, class, or age can plead exemption or escape the battle. Ministers and people, preachers and hearers, old and young, high and low, rich and poor, gentle and simple, kings and subjects, landlords and tenants, learned and unlearned, all must, all alike must carry arms and go to war. He that would understand the nature of true holiness must know that the Christian is a man of war. If we will be holy, we must fight. And that's in his book, Holiness, if you want to look that up holiness 
Remove sorrow from your heart and put away pain from your flesh, because youth and the prime of life are fleeting. So let us pursue holiness. Let us pursue what pleases God. And in closing, let us give time to Psalm 24. Verse 3 says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false, and who is not sworn deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that the blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And this is something that um, theologians sometimes call the, the beatific, beatific vision, the idea of seeing God, of being graced with his presence, tangibly, physically. Why? Because God is holy, and we're not. But to draw near to God means to draw away from the world, from the, from the things that defiled us in the first place, from the things that God hates, from the things that warranted Christ's death. And so who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may enter into his presence? But one who has clean hands and a pure heart. And this list is actually better understood backwards because it's in the wrong order. And so if we go from the bottom up, he will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. That's imputation. That is justification. And who is this? He will receive blessings, a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And this is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false, and who has not sworn deceitfully. And this is the one who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place. And so the people that would stand in this holy place, the people that would ascend the mountain of the Lord, are the ones that God has made holy in his eyes, the ones he has counted as righteous, counted as his own, through the gift of his son, who died for sin as a sin offering, and rose from the dead, conquering the power of sin forevermore. And those of us who come to Christ for that forgiveness, for that justification, he does not turn away. But he blesses us with righteousness. And we are given Christ's righteousness that's counted to our account, that we may stand in the presence of God. It says in Jude, Now all glory to him who is able to make you stand in his presence, without spot or blemish. That's where this goes. This is sanctification. That we are made, we are remade in his image because man was originally made in God's image in the garden. But because of sin, that image has been defaced. But through the work of Christ, dying for sin, through the work of the Spirit, um, repairing what was broken, through the work of the Spirit, indwelling believers and inclining their affections to the things of God, 
that image is being remade. That we are, in a sense, being brought back to the garden. And that will be completed when Christ comes back. And sin is done away with forever. When sin, death, pain are gone. And we will dwell with God. Tangibly, physically. The Lord will dwell with his people. It says in Ezekiel that the name of the city on that day will be, The Lord is there. And I implore you today to come unto the Christ that accomplished all things. Come unto the Christ who beckons the sinner to come and be made new. Come to the Christ who is a fully qualified Savior, who is more than capable to make you stand in the presence of himself in that holy place, that you may ascend the hill of the Lord. Come unto Christ today. Thank you for listening. This has been the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is a podcast ministry striving to feed people the wonderful words of God, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse, striving to let the word speak for itself. This ministry is also a member of the Truth and Love Network, a diverse fellowship of fellow podcasts of different theological backgrounds united in the gospel of God. For more from the Bread of the Word podcast or the Truth and Love Network, check out the links below and follow us on social media. Until next time, God bless. Matthew 4.4.